0: From Oakland, California, I'm Frank Ling, and you're listening to The Rock Science Show.
1: It's the weekly look at your world of science, technology, and the way it affects our daily lives. I am the man on the street joining Frank Ling for the show this week.
0: Coming up, we'll be talking about earthquake science. Fortran and coal
1: that's right we do have a range of topics so
0: stay tuned right here for the garage science show And joining us again is our very special guest, the man on the street with the down-to-earth science that you cannot find anywhere
1: else. Well, I'm glad to be here.
0: Oh, well, it's, you know, it's great to be back to be in California and um, certainly enjoying the weather, the food, and, uh, well, occasionally a couple of earthquakes,
1: it seems. Yes, indeed. California is earthquake central, but surprisingly, we, we seem to have earthquakes on either side of California these days talk about the difference in earthquakes between eastern U.S. and western U.S.
0: Over in Japan, there is a lot of difference, you know, based on the, the type of waves, seismic waves that approach, and, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to know more about what happens in U.S.
1: Yes, yeah, I mean, and, and Japan is also, you know, uh, generally the western U.S. is considered like Japan in the sense that uh, they are both high seismic, con- you know, uh, an area with large uh, concentration of earthquake activity, right. whereas the eastern US is not. The most interesting part of the difference between the eastern US and western US is the crust in the western US is completely fragmented, essentially because of the earthquake activity going on over millennia, uh-huh. whereas the eastern US crust is st- basically a strong rock that is consistent in its structure. Right. So the biggest thing that actually happens is earthquakes do not travel as far in California when they actually occur okay. within the crust, when they are crustal earthquakes. But crustal earthquakes in the eastern U.S., once they occur, even though they are infrequent, when uh-huh. they occur, they travel for large distances and their, uh, their power doesn't dissipate as quickly. Oh, so see. they can actually... Cause damage for much larger distances than what you see on the west coast. I see.
0: So, in terms of the direction of these uh, seismic waves, is it does it have a particular type of orientation?
1: Uh, it, I mean it is. They, these are random events. I mean that, that is that is true that they are random events. But yes, I mean depending on how close you are to the earthquakes, there is a, there is a strong orientation. To the to the waves that approach you. I see. Uh, fundamentally, the the waves that are have issues with structures are what they call shear waves, uh-huh. which are uh, the waves that travel along the surface. Uh, and then there is compression waves, which also which are the vertical waves, uh, which actually hit you before the shear waves. But the shear waves are the ones that cause the biggest damage. I see. Um, and these are, of course, what you mostly see in. Uh, the com- compression and shear waves are what you mostly see in crustal earthquakes. Uh, not the subduction earthquakes create even different kind of waves, but those are right. abnormal. But right. the big Japan you- event that you are referring to was a subduction event. I see. Which is relatively rare, but as you know, when it happens, it happens are the big ones. Yes, they are the big ones.
0: Well, I can tell you uh, a couple of the uh, local effects. Uh, uh, you know, besides the waves, is the type of soil you have. Mm-hmm. And uh, particularly where I lived, uh, liquefaction was a very big problem. So even though we were actually further away from the epicenter, our damages were greater because of this uh, liquefaction that occurred due to the sandy soil yes, in that yes. area.
1: Yeah, liquefaction is always a big concern. It's a big concern in the Bay Area. And anywhere you're going to see motions and basically you're going to have submerged sandy soils. You're going to get liquefaction. Uh, and, and that's interesting because liquefaction is an extreme case of soft soils. You can think of in the sense of ground motions, not in the sense of actual uh, displacement, but in terms of motions. And this is basically, you can think of it as filters. Right. So a soft soil is essentially a filter, which means that the frequency of the waves that are going to affect your structures are going to be much lower, so mm-hmm. a soft soil is a low-pass filter for those ah, people interested in electrical engineering or understand circuits. This is basically a low-pass filter, and what happens again, bringing it back to eastern and western U.S. is because the the rock is all splintered up. It's essentially a softer rock than the eastern U.S. rock, and so you will see a low, uh, lower frequencies getting amplified the Western US oh, I see and higher frequencies amplified in the Eastern US mm-hmm. and as a result structures will respond very differently so I see it, it's a very interesting problem
0: so sp- speaking of soils uh, w- you know one of the interesting things I learned was that uh, apparently there's a precise definition for what a clay is versus sand versus the soil yeah C- can you maybe elaborate on this a little bit
1: so fundamentally these are just uh, it is particle size. So I see. Fundamentally, a clay uh, is the smallest particle size. The next one up is silt, the next one up is sand, mm. and the next one up is gravel. I see. So, really, it is actually the, the literal size that you can pass the, the, mini, the grain through, the sieve that can, it can pass through the grains, right. is how these are divided. What happens, although, is as the sizes fall, the nature of the materials changes. So even in the sand, the mechanical properties are really the physical grain particles interacting. Oh, I see. Whereas once you get down to the clay level, uh-huh. now that the particle sizes are so small, the chemical bonds between the clay uh-huh. create all these cementitious effects. And now you just don't have the mechanical strength. You actually have chemical strengths in war. And so clays behave very differently than sands behave. So That's the difference, really. So, you
0: know, just a question.
1: Uh... You know,
0: brick, of course, is often made from clay, right? But mm-hmm. if you crumble or crush the brick and bring it down, back to a t- uh, powder, would that become a clay again or not?
1: Uh, uh, I, it's the type of soil it uses. Uh-huh. Uh, it, is, uh, it does, there are bonds that are broken Right. Uh, during the formation of the process. But if you really do powder it again, you can possibly bring it into a powder... Uh-huh. That will not will have a very different strength than the original clay because mm-hmm. you've broken the chemical bonds in the structure. Right. But of course, over time, if you do do actually have a layering process and the compression over time, it could possibly bring in. Although you know, I I really yeah, I um, won't be sure. I can you can bring back the original strength. Well, you know, who yeah. could
0: make soil science so interesting?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's 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 a nature's process, and you know, it's it's the all these alluvial deposits and the way these rivers uh, deposit them, which is why you get all these uh, different effects. And amaz- amazingly, because of these chemical uh, bonds, you don't see liquefaction take place. And I see. Well, partly also because it cannot act as Individual particles, the way sand particles do, right? And it cannot and doesn't lose its strength the uh-huh. way it does. So in that sense, clay is helpful. Right. Uh, in other ways, it's not because you get a lot of settlement out of clays. So okay. If you if you have heard problems in Texas or the bay uh, bay mud problems all along our bay coast, it's uh, clays are famous for causing uh, settlements of four or five feet plus. So. They cool. kill a lot of structures. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so uh, you know what else is uh, interesting in the world of uh, uh, you know soil uh, geosciences?
1: Well, the the latest uh, the latest stuff coming up these days is actually uh, uh, for for the Bay Area and the generally the Western US type of earthquake country. So basically, all the Ring of Fire kind of places: Japan, California, Chile. Uh, you know Indonesia, those places. There are new relationships that are coming out for you know basically trying to predict ground motion at your site depending on how far away you are from earthquake hypocenters and epicenters. All right. And uh, basically, uh, in fact, even so, it's called the. It's actually mostly funded by the Pacific Engineering Research Institute, uh-huh. which is Pier. Uh, it's the UC Berkeley Foundation. And they're coming up with what they call the next generation attenuation relationships. And they just got published at the end of last year and they're going to get into the code this year. And that's the biggest thing in uh, the consulting world that uses earthquake sciences for uh, structural engineering. Oh,
0: I see. So, um, you know, I've done some work in Vietnam, actually, uh, mostly from the uh, perspective of climate change. And I've been looking at how communities adapt to sea level rise and inundation and floods. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the interesting things I've uh, learned is that the traditional practices of using natural fibers, palm fibers, or other type of, uh, you know, fallen uh, biomass in that area uh, can be used to effectively build seawalls when they mix it with clay or other types of soil. Mm-hmm. and. So you know, in terms of um earthquake proofing or you no know, disaster proofing, it seems like there are a lot of traditional ways of of uh you know so called technology which are actually quite as effective and you know one of the key messages from our research was that uh we should try to uh learn from this and not necessarily mm-hmm. say that uh you know industrialized countries have the best technologies I. Right you know, the best advanced concrete may not be the best solution.
1: Yeah, and especially in, in, in situations where your dynamics is involved because a lot of these places, especially with, you know, old cultures, their whole thing is they actually, you know, they may not have the modern labs, but they have empirical evidence. This is all built on empirical evidence. They have seen past events and they've seen how these things impact. And, you know, empirically, at least, they have built on it. And this is actually a collective human knowledge that mm-hmm. we are really seeing so no i completely agree with you that these things totally should be used first of all because they can easily access those materials but even beyond that you know the fact that some of these things actually especially for dynamic events mm-hmm. uh, be it earthquakes or even wave action or floods. floods things like that for dynamic events, the ductility of the structure is just as important as its stiffness. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these natural materials offer that dual possibility that possibly a concrete wall may not always offer. Mm-hmm. And so there are these advantages. Of course, you can read, I mean, there, there's always things you can do with modern materials as well. I'm not saying there's no reason to throw the baby out with the material, <laughs> I guess is all I'm <laughs> saying. So. Right. Yeah.
0: So, wow, that's a lot of interesting insights, uh, you know, in, in terms of, of uh, preparing for natural disasters and uh, how geotechnical engineers deal with it. Um, you know, wh- what are some of the techniques you use to forecast uh, these types of events and, in fact, trying to design solutions for them?
1: So there's, there's several statistical techniques and, uh, you know, dynamics, uh, just computational dynamics techniques. So that's actually not even statistical. That's deterministic techniques that people use. Um, and uh, these are basically your classic engineering tools for, you know, dynamics modeling, computational models. A lot of uh, hazard-related uh, technologies are very popular nowadays. And they're assigned to several different types of things like ground motion, tsunamis, fault displacement. And so we use all these tools and techniques, and yes, and a lot of these technique and a lot of our actually tools. An interesting part is they're still in a lot of legacy code, which is in Fortran, actually. Okay, so is, uh, and
0: you also use Cray computers,
1: right? Uh, not actually. We don't need Cray computers anymore. Uh, in the '80s, they did used to use many uh, or supercomputers for these things, but as you know, computational power has expanded so thoroughly that. We can do most of our work on desktops now. Hey,
0: maybe Google can do it for you, right? They have a lot
1: of... Yeah, know, we uh, we some of the, we at least use... The, some people use the Amazon Cloud and the mm-hmm. uh, Amazon Web Services mm-hmm. uh, to to do a lot of their work. Basically post their work overnight and get the jobs done. But uh, you need... Uh, they generally do it if they need parallel computing and they're using like 50 cores or something like that. Oh, I see. And we do it very rarely, but... Uh, groundwater a lot of water modelers use it more than I do.
0: Okay, so um, so it seems you know most modelers and you know engineers use Mathematica or MATLAB these days. What's the uh, fascination with Fortran?
1: <laughs> so yes, so I, I think the primary reason is uh, legacy code. Uh, we do have a uh, you know, lot of resources and tools built over the years that are in Fortran. Because that was the popular language in the 80s and even 90s predominantly. MATLAB is very popular now. The real biggest problem is money. MATLAB for students is free or trivial. But as soon as you're in the, in the consulting world, yeah, it is pretty expensive. Uh, whereas uh, now R, which is getting very popular, which is open source, mm-hmm. uh, is very much like MATLAB. And we are trying to change over for, uh, for statistical work to R. And uh, there is a lot of you know newer newer students, uh, including myself, who were trained in MATLAB. However, the interesting part about Fortran uh, is that post compilation, yes, it's a little bit cumbersome when you're developing code. And as you know, MATLAB is interactive, and there's several interactive languages there. But uh, the once you do Fortran, and once you have taken care of the kinks, post compilation, MATLAB is still the fastest executing code out there.
0: Is it because of how it addresses memory or how it Uh,
1: breaks uh, down the problem? uh, Yes, Uh, I mean, mostly because I think, you know, it is formula translation. And most of civil engineering problems are really that we are using pretty basic structures here. Using loops and case structures as control loops. So it's not really getting to something very uh, difficult in terms of the computing part of the problem. On the other hand, it's a lot of number crunching. And including the fact that there is a lot of file I/O and things like that, it still comes out ahead. To the point where uh, some of it comes like ten to forty times faster than MATLAB, for example, when you're running you know large uh, projects. There is some newer functional languages now. I don't know if you've heard of Julia and things like that. they're you know they're doing interesting stuff. And certain recursive problems, it starts coming to the mm-hmm. even there. It's mm-hmm. only approaching Fortran. Uh, but Fortran is still uh, once post compilation, Fortran still is one of the fastest things out there. Oh, I see. So it it does do its job. Uh, once it doesn't do its job here doing parallel computing, but it's st- but for smaller problems, it's a workhorse.
0: So you mentioned uh, um, uh, you know water flow and uh, fluid dynamics. So I presume you're using some. Component of the Navier-Stokes equation to do all these calculations. Is
1: that right? Uh, well, I'm personally not doing it. Uh, <laughs> I'm not using Navier-Stokes. I have done it in school. Surface water, ground water, people predominantly do that. A lot of these are already coded in, you know, their finite difference, finite element codes, and these are specialized codes that are adopted for that within mm-hmm. the framework. There are people who do more interesting things now. Who do this thing called groundwater surface water interaction which is you know you're taking it a step ahead right. and they're doing some very interesting modeling there's a big usgs group which does that and they do something called unstructured grids but uh, my expertise pretty much ends there I, I i do some basic finite difference modeling for groundwater but haven't used navistokes i see
0: and so you know one of the interesting or you know controversial news these days is on this whole uh, activity of fracking w- w- what are your thoughts on that mm-hmm. uh, is there exposure to uh, groundwater that's harmful for the environment or is it all localized uh,
1: uh, again uh, my expertise is not in that area at all i have not done any fracking projects per se my companies east eastern coast some people do deal with that and the uh, the pro-argument that I know about, about fracking is mostly the fact that uh, once you develop your well, as the well is being developed, there can be some pollution, but once the well is developed, you can create grout seals and different kinds of seals and additional seals, which essentially brings the risk down. Of course, nobody's going to guarantee you anything, but they not mm-hmm. bring the risk down to the point where e- even if you monitor, you won't be able to detect. That, that level of risk however that's you know it's it's really deep in the ground how do you uh, how do you ch- how do you you know confirm that yeah and and the issue is do annular seals work? Yes they do work I mean on surface wells and surface bore wells we are talking really deep horizontal wells so I'm I'm not completely sold on it but mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of smart people out there so I wouldn't totally uh, discount it.
0: Well, so it's uh, it's been a really uh, nice conversation, and uh, I, I certainly enjoyed your hospitality. It's uh, been a, another great visit to the Bay Area.
1: Yeah, the Bay. You know, we always like it when we have you here, and, <laughs> uh, and also, by the way, uh, Frank hands me a big piece of coal when he was here. Uh, and what was that all about, Frank?
0: Santa brings coal for Christmas.
1: <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Apparently, the, you know, I've been a bad boy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, But actually, uh, so coal or activated uh, charcoal is um, a very old uh, Asian technology. It's been used for hundreds of years as a way to purify water. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that it, you know, it could be bamboo or some other type of, of wood. Uh, but you you would basically bake it about 2000 degrees okay and and then cool it immediately and that would convert it to a charcoal-like substance so uh uh it, it would have a very high surface area like i think you know 1 gram would be something like the equivalent of a football field oh wow okay and so you can see that th- that would have a huge potential to absorb uh, Many things as like moisture, contaminants, organic molecules.
1: Okay, and this this is because of chemical attraction or addition to purification, or so. Like?
0: Mm-hmm. So when you when you sinter this or whatever the process you call it, you create these uh, cavities in this charcoal, and that means that molecules can get trapped if they were to flow into it. So especially like mm-hmm. metal ions. Mm-hmm. Um, or organic contaminants, and that's why, uh, for example, you could use it to, you know, as uh, uh, the example I showed you here in the kitchen was to just put it in the water, and it would absorb right. the impurities. And so it works much like your those, you know, fancy activated charcoal uh, charcoal filters you buy at the uh, store.
1: Right. Oh, okay. All right. So, uh, so this is the this is the old world solution for it. Right. Well,
0: you know, I I think uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, young people in Japan who are very interested suddenly they realize that there's a lot of older technologies which are actually quite relevant and even cheaper than a lot of the uh, you know the new stuff they have.
1: Yeah, and and they're you know you don't you don't need to worry about patterns and <laughs> things like that with them. Yeah, they're freely available. Yeah,
0: and you know this is an interesting story uh, around where I, I live. Uh, you know if you walk around the hill, there's these two old ladies and uh, they make. Uh, they make charcoal from, you know, different types of wood and, you know, they sell it to you by the kilogram.
1: At home, they make it. Yeah. It's the, the home industry. Okay. Yeah.
0: And, uh, you know, other things they do is they also make charcoal smoke. So they capture the smoke okay. into this liquid. And that uh, liquid that contains all this charcoal fume could be used to cure things, for example, like... Uh, um, uh, when, you, when your feet have, what do you call it, um, infections, like foot infections. Oh, okay. Skin like infections. As
1: if they're disinfectants or they're... Yes. Uh, fungicides. Yeah, or fungicides. fungicides. Okay.
0: And, uh, I think in the past, you know, activated charcoal or something similar had been used for medicinal purposes. Okay. Um, so, you know, there's there's a lot of fascinating uses and uh, some specialty stores will grind up and make soaps out of it. Uh, it turns out that these charcoals absorb oil very readily. So, if you rub it on your skin, it actually cleans it.
1: Oh, like an exfoliating effect. Yeah, yeah. but
0: it extracts all the oils from your pores. Oh, okay. okay. Um, so, there's tons of uses for this. Um, you know, in larger quantities, you can actually use it to control the humidity in your home. So, um, during, uh, say, humid times, the charcoal would absorb the water, and then during like uh, drier days, you can use it to.
1: Oh, to really release. release the water oh, so, wow.
0: in your in your in your room. Um, interesting. So it has a way to modulate the humidity in your living area, and of course, it'll it would absorb most odors uh, in the house. Wow.
1: Several uses. Oh yeah. Um, instead of you know throwing it in the fireplace. Right. <laughs>
0: and so there's a lot of really interesting science about about these uh, charcoals. For example, you know. Uh, the bamboo ones and the wooden ones have different structures and so they would have different uh, properties and one of them is that uh, especially with bamboo uh, they have silicate crystals because bamboo apparently has a lot of silicate uh, okay. in, in their uh, in their cellulosic mass and so when, once it's um, even after it's in charcoal these silica like uh, crystals are there and so You have to use a very special knife, for example, when you're cutting bamboo, because these microcrystals would actually wear out blades if you didn't use the right type of
1: Interesting, okay.
0: And so there's a lot of science involved with, you know, these simple things, but Uh uh, people who understand it can, uh, you know, build really interesting uh, processes, you know, not just water filters and and soaps, but... um, uh, you know, design entire um, or you know, build structures using these, uh, you know, these term- char- charcoal yeah. blocks or
1: charcoal right. um, as a, as the building material. Right. Very interesting.
0: So mm-hmm. yeah, we certainly covered quite a bit of uh, uh, basic <laughs> earth technology, basic plant technology, but there's just you know, uh, you know, we should not get over we should get over this notion that the advanced technologies we have are, I may mean, not necessarily be the best solutions. And there's a lot of stuff that you can get for the same outcome with much less cost.
1: Very much so. And I mean, like, like we talked about those levies in Vietnam, you know, there's a lot, lot of this, a uh, lot of these technologies, just the fact that there is human capital that went into uh, coming up with these technologies that, even though there is not a, a lab testing program for it, it, has actually had the advantage of going through human experiences right. and has been finished over the years to perfectly suit needs. So there is a, there is a, it's, it's, it's a knowledge that we would be throwing away if we don't use it. Oh, yeah, it. certainly. I mean, yeah. it
0: would be quite a tragedy if we were to lose that. But yes. uh, I think uh, there's a you know, strong awareness that we need to keep these uh, wisdom alive. Yeah, and
1: it's, it's, that's heartening, if nothing else. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, uh, certainly wise words from the man on the street. <laughs> and that's all for this week's edition of the Rock Science Show. Make sure you tune in again next week for more from the world of science, technology, and the way it affects our daily lives. In the meantime, you can check us out on the web at www.grox.net, email us at science at uh, for Grok Science, I'm Franklin. Stay tuned here for more music.